Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Wicked Problems. I'm Richard Delavan. It's been another a big week. The sums just don't add up. And basically the gas network's futures are predicated on stopping people realising that, I think. (laughs) We should really respect those voices who are reminding us that for certain parts of the world, going above 1.5 is a calamity. Although that said, I think that awareness should not stop us acknowledging that this really is progress. In a sense, it's I think of it as kind of like Peter Pan, the whole thing of, I do believe in fairies. If enough people say, I do believe in fairies, then they actually exist. It should at least be a source of hope that we won't be retiring into the world of Mad Max. I'm Richard Delavan, and we're back with Wicked Problems climate tech show that isn't afraid of the big questions like gifts to get for the climate nerds in your life. Or if, like me, you're that person who says when asked what you want for Christmas, you inevitably say something infuriating like, I have enough stuff. Or, I just want everyone to be happy. Or, my two front teeth. But now you realize that someone's going to just get you socks, and not nice socks, but something bulky to just put under the tree. That too much information, maybe? Okay. Anyway, that was Ben Cook earlier, you heard, who writes about climate tech and the environment for the Times here in the UK. Something of a double episode. We asked Ben to come on to go through his climate book recommendations for the year. But we also got him on a day that, despite having just come back from COP28 in Dubai, he had two bylines in the paper that day. So we also talked about the government's decision to drop the hydrogen home heating trial in Redker. Given his time on the ground in Dubai, we thought it would be remiss not to ask him about his reaction to what came out of that process at the end, the agreement. Then we get into Ben's book list for this year. Before we jump into that, some housekeeping. If you're listening to the public feed, but you prefer to get an ad-free version of this podcast, you can sign up at news.wickedproblems.uk, where you'll also find our newsletter and all our show notes. We're going to pack a couple of more new episodes in before Claire Brady and I take a bit of time off before we rock back into 2024. But to keep you going over the holiday break, we're going to 
revisit some of our favorite conversations in this feed, and we will be still putting out our newsletter. But now, here's my conversation with Ben Cook. We hope you enjoy. And I'm so delighted to be joined today by Ben Cook, who writes about climate tech and the environment for The Times. Happy Friday, Ben. Happy Friday. So glad you could be here and join us. It's uh, I know you're you're still recovering from your your trip to Dubai for. <laughs> so I want to ask you about that, but before I do, today in today's paper, no rest for the wicked. You've come back from Dubai. It's been quite a newsy couple of weeks, and so the today's headline is really about the government's decision not to go ahead with this trial for hydrogen home heating in Redcar. You've been on this story really for months. Tell us about how things came out this week. So I, I first wrote about this story about a year ago. Essentially, how this story started was Boris Johnson, a couple of years ago, said that the government would do a trial for hydrogen heating, and it would either be in Whitby in Ellesmere Port, or it would be in Redcar in North Yorkshire. Um, and I first wrote about these trials last year when the residents in Ellesmere Port were starting a campaign to protest their potential involvement in this trial. And they were angry because they would have to switch off natural gas, either for a hydrogen boiler or or a heat pump. And they were worried that this could lock them into using a fuel hydrogen, which they were hearing from experts was potentially more dangerous, more expensive, and probably not the way forward for how we're going to heat our homes. And so earlier this year, the residents of Ellesmere Port succeeded in getting that project struck off, the potential site for the trial. And then the residents in Redcar were a little slower to start campaigning against the idea of holding a trial in their neighbourhood. But they essentially came around to the same position as the residents in Ellesmere Port and they campaigned against it. And yesterday, the government announced that the trial wouldn't be happening in Redcar either. So there just isn't going to be a large-scale hydrogen heating trial Hmm. anywhere. While the government say that they still recognise that hydrogen heating might play a role in decarbonising home heating, I think really the way to read this is that it's the death knell for really a grossly inefficient way to decarbonize our homes compared to heat pumps. Because this is something that, and again, I I suppose I've looked at this, you've looked at this in some detail, but to remind people who maybe aren't quite as obsessed about this as as you and I are, (laughs) the, so the, the reason why it's a little bit wacky and Michael Barnard is the, the Canadian analyst who came on the program some a couple of months ago was pretty scathing about this. It has no time for anybody who hasn't done the math. But the idea that you're going to use so generally hydrogen comes in two two colors, as they call it these days, yeah. from methane, from natural gas, and you basically do something called steam reforming, and you basically blast it with a lot of heat. You make it hot. You take out the the CO2. You capture that somehow, and then you basically have the hydrogen left over and use that. And the other way is green hydrogen being you use renewable electricity plus water put through electrolyzers like we might have used in secondary school in chemistry class to be able to do that experiment. Then voila, you get uh, hydrogen, which is, it's, it is not cheap, right? I saw Michael Liebreich calculating that four pounds a kilogram, you're going to be able to replace something 
that currently costs ADP for the heat services mm. that you'd be able to get from it. So the, the numbers are just kind of wacky, right? Yeah. The, so the, so the, but there's a lot at stake here, right? I heard someone from one of the gas networks, the distributed networks on the BBC earlier this week, before this decision was announced, talking up the fact that we could have 30% of all of our energy used from hydrogen, including for heating. Because while they didn't go ahead with this trial in Red Curve, the government did leave open the door for blending hydrogen into the gas network. Yes. And am I right yes. in saying that the, the stakes here are huge? Because you've got, I mean, just the one company, Cadence, there's mm-hmm. $10 billion in assets, 6,000 mm-hmm. employees, 50% of all the homes in the UK are connected to their distribution networks for natural gas. Yeah. The government follows the recommendations of the National Infrastructure Commission and just says, right, we're not going to be doing this in by 2050. That means they have huge amount of stranded assets, right? Yeah. And these gas networks need to find a way to convert to Sears that these assets on their books are actually assets, are actually worth something. And the idea that we can put a new clean fuel through those pipes is their way to do it. But I mean, as you say, it's it's a stupid idea because of the inefficiency. If you take green hydrogen, I mean, that's made with renewable energy, you might lose about 10% of that energy in transmission, then you would lose a bunch more in the electrolyzer than a bunch more when you actually combust it. You're looking at maybe getting half of the energy that you initially got from that wind turbine actually in the form of heat in the home. Compare that with a heat pump, which can be about 400% efficient. So the sums just don't add up. And basically the gas network's futures are predicated on stopping people realizing that. I think. <laughs> well, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I, I want to ask you to comment because I haven't seen, I have not seen your reporting specifically on this. But when I look at someone like Phoebe Cook and the Smog or kind of Lee yeah. Collins and Hydrogen Insight, have written about the some of the PR campaigns that some people have been involved in to try and mm-hmm. suggest that heat pumps are a terrible idea, don't really work, especially in a cold climate. Never mind the fact that mm-hmm. the most popular place in the world for heat pumps is Scandinavia, which yeah. allegedly is a bit colder. I'm not sure. That's what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, it's so it's something that I suppose with the new year, we'll have to see you know, how this rolls out. And I suppose the yes. election might play some role. The government says in 2026 that mm. they're going to make some kind of a decision about whether or not home heating has a future with hydrogen. Mm. Then it seems likely that we might have different players at yeah. the table, so to speak. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask you about your experiences at, at COP. So you kind of went there to the, these, the first frenetic few days, which seemed to be yeah. like from a PR perspective, going like clockwork. There was always something or an announcement ready to go for you every day. Let's start with the loss and damage fund. Then we'll have the trebling renewables and get <laughs> Ursula van der Leyen to kind of front this announcement and all this good stuff. So how, what was, first of all, just from a just a pure human experience of the intensity of that for a hundred thousand people turning up in this pretty big area, but still it's a lot of people to kind of rock up to Expo City there in Dubai. What was it like? It was thrilling to be there. I mean, as a climate nerd myself, I find something very exciting about what is essentially like a big lock-in for all the world's climate nerds. <laughs> and also I just find something incredibly endearing about just how nerdy the kind of atmosphere is at COP where water cooler conversation will be about 
how to design carbon markets or something. Like, I think just from my own personal perspective, I think the thing that gives me the most hope about the climate is the knowledge that so many incredibly smart and passionate people are working on this really difficult problem. COP is really the most vivid expression of that. I mean, if you're actually there on the ground, like it, it's an incredibly vivid expression of that, I suppose. Right. So things were very highly coordinated at the very beginning. Then there was this kind of very dark period of a couple of days where it wasn't clear whether there was going to be an agreement. There were some mutterings um, about a potentially walkout when uh, the phase out of fossil fuel or phase down of fossil fuel language, um, the Saudis were signaling that they would block anything that sounded remotely like that. And they seem to have come up with something that, you know, again, well, not everybody is saying this is a great deal. Certainly, if you're in a small island state, you've got serious concerns. The Anne Rasmussen's speech from Samoa we wrote about earlier this week in our newsletter. And gosh, that was hard to listen to. But I think that overall, when people step back, say, this is the first time we've acknowledged the elephant in the room, being that fossil fuels are the cause uh, emissions that are causing, you know, the warming planet. The fact that objectively is something has changed. Mm. So how do you mm. feel about the, the where we wound up on the text? This is an imperfect deal, and it looks especially, especially imperfect from the perspective of the small island states, for whom 1.5 degrees really is existential. And to be clear, the IEA has shown that all the announcements which were made at COP28, even if they were fully fulfilled, was only bridge about 30% of the gap between where we're headed and where we need to be for 1.5. So we're not on track for 1.5. I think we should really respect those voices who are reminding us that for certain parts of the world, going above 1.5 is a calamity. Although that said, I think that awareness should not stop us acknowledging that this really is progress. It really is a sign that the kind of ratchet mechanism of the Paris Agreement is working, is averting the kind of utter catastrophe that it looked like we could be heading for before mm. the Paris Agreement. I think in terms of the wording in the agreement, it's a massive market signal to the world that for the first time, COP has ended with an agreement pledging to transition away from fossil fuels. Now, that agreement is not legally binding. It is basically just an expression of intent. Therefore, it will only be meaningful so far as lots of investors around the world and lots of other actors actually convince themselves that it's meaningful. In a sense, it's I think of it as kind of like Peter Pan with the whole thing of I do believe in fairies. If enough people say I do believe in fairies, then they actually exist. That so, <laughs> I love that in, in in Peter Pan, and I think that's kind of how we should think about right. the pledge in, in the agreement. Right. Enough people think that it actually means something, even though it's not legally binding. It will mean something. Well, I think that's an actually that's a brilliant point, and I think it, it's something that chimes with. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Things, and I guess we'll pivot this conversation to, I guess, why I've taken a lot of your time, but like why I originally asked you on, because if you had this wonderful list of books that you recommended uh, for readers of your newspaper uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I suppose that one of the books on that list is, of course, Akshat Rati's Climate Capitalism. And I think that view about the effects of Paris, and I think he's, he's said similar things to what you've, you've said around COP28, is that that's the, the real proof of whether or not we will have seen this be a catalyst for change is whether or not you see movement in the markets and capital allocation mm -hmm. in people deciding that, yeah, in fact, it's things like this decision in Redcar, right? It's the decisions mm -hmm. about where am I going to put the chips? Where are the assets going to flow? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, what are the bets I'm going to place for the future on? And if this is a signal that causes a shift in strategy for investors, for people, for companies, then that'll be the effect that, to your point, people, enough people believing in the fairies will uh, kind of move things in that direction. And that's just human psychology. So that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So so tell us about this list. So first, I mean, well, I know it's not going completely in order. You know, Akshat's book, Climate Capitalism, explain to, tell us about that and why it's on your list. So Akshat's book is, well, in his own words, it's a provocation. He set out to make a case that a lot of environmentalists kind of instinctively recoil at, I think, which is that actually capitalism, although it has been the engine of the climate crisis so far, could actually be the solution to it. Essentially, it's a tour of different industries around the world and a look at how in each of those industries, a combination of really clever technicians and entrepreneurs and sensible government regulation have managed to speed up the transition to cleaner technologies. I think what's really good about it that it really is that Akshat really succeeds in giving a sense what it's like to be in all these different positions in the kind of effort to transition to cleaner technologies, whether it be the Chinese bureaucrat who is creating regulations for EVs, whether it be the whiz kids who are in inventing more energy-dense batteries, whether it be Bill Gates deciding who to invest in. I think he really has this kind of this kind of marvelous empathic ability to understand what it might be like to inhabit all those different and in, in the energy transition. And so, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, I'd really recommend it. Excellent. I suppose everyone would like say, 
likes a novel. So, I mean, I, and I particularly like thrillers myself. So one of the other books on your list is, is The Deluge by Stephen yes. Markley. So tell us about that. Oh, so, so The Deluge is, it's a doorstopper. It's about 900 pages, but it, it's a really, I mean, it's a page turn, I think. So it starts in 2014 and then follows the lives of lots of different people from all walks of American life, from a fintech wonderkind to a climate activist to a drug addict, follows their lives through the 2020s, the 2030s, and 20s. The world descends into climate chaos and nihilistic populism stemming from that climate chaos in large part. Basically, the challenge that Stephen Markley, the author, has set himself is imagining we might go deeper and deeper into some of those worst aspects of our present moment, and then how we might actually get out the other side and in some way resolve the climate crisis. And I think what's amazing about the deluge is the way in which Stephen Markley manages to do two things at once. He manages to tell that very zoomed out story about trajectory of society and the biosphere and the interaction between the two, while also telling some very convincing personal stories and actually telling one through the other, which is a really difficult thing to do. And I think generally not one that many novelists succeed in doing. I think that kind of abstract grand historical narrative, not a form that the novel in general is particularly suited to because novels in general are about individual particular lives and that's what makes them compelling, right? Right. Read a novel to be absorbed in another subjectivity. Mm. And it's really difficult to absorb your reader in a realistic individual subjectivity Mm. while also giving this kind of zoomed out perspective of what is happening to the entire planet over 20 or 30 years. And he manages it. And you put it, as you put it in your review, yeah, most novels are, are about kind of whether Lizzie Bennet should marry Darcy. But yeah, I suppose, I mean, Tolstoy, War and Peace. I mean, if you want to yeah. kind of get an insight about the great Russian yeah. people about through the Napoleonic Wars or a different medium. But I mean, I've heard people compare David Simon's The Wire being a way of kind of understanding early century America through that lens of all these different individual stories being told. So that's interesting. So how would you say it compares to a Kim Stanley Robinson or a uh, Neil Stevenson or other people who have tried written things that are more very different kinds of authors, kind of very character one. Neil Stevenson does seem to do a little bit better about characters in some of the reviews. Mm -hmm. Kim Stanley Robinson's characters seems to be more interested in in the grand kind of climate story rather than necessarily the characters always being perfectly drawn as as a novel so where would you say he that Stephen Markley falls so I haven't actually read Neil Stevenson although I have read Kim Stanley Robinson Mm. Um, I think the Ministry of the Future is definitely worth a read I think as you say it's I think Kim Stanley Robinson's interest and talent as a writer is much more for imagining how abstract social systems might function. In that sense, it's a much more kind of zoomed out sensibility. I think that the form of the Ministry for the Future kind of shows that at times just he kind of 
abandons the effort to tell that zoomed out story through the lens of individual individuals' lives, um, just has these random chunks of text which are about like, oh, how monetary policy is changing in a warming world. I think at one point, like even has a chapter from the perspective of the sun. <laughs> Or something. I think it's a carbon. It's like a carbon atom, and like it's yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah, just yeah. It's a, oh, okay, so okay. There's no. So there's none yeah. of that with Stephen Markley. So it's, it's it keeps you going. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's really worth me. Okay, and mm-hmm. so skipping ahead then for another book that you you kind of put out there mm-hmm. is Avocado Anxiety. So Louise Gray, tell yes. us about that. So Avocado Anxiety is an exploration of our food system and the ways in which it's kind of miraculous and the ways in which it's also very damaging and how those two features of it are intertwined. Like it's miraculous insofar as it is just kind of amazing that you can walk into a supermarket in the middle of December and see all these tropical fruits on our, um, and essentially buy whatever we want from I and mean, I really think that if if a medieval peasant or, or somebody to get into a time machine and arrive in 2023, like that would be the thing that would impress the most is that as a society, we have basically solved the problem of like how we feed ourselves without 90% of the population all breaking their backs, right. scavenging the, the earth for <laughs> calories. At the same time, there's a dark under... Underside of that, which is that like our food system is pillaging the natural world. That's what avocado anxiety is exploring. I mean, the title of the book is, of course, your august newspaper would never do this, Ben. But others might be uh, rant to have columnists who rant about the idea that it's only because of the fact that people are buying avocados, which they shouldn't be eating anyway, that they can't afford things like buying a house. But it's <laughs> a, but it's something that I guess that the food is so different from. The kinds of things that, again, I forget a medieval peasant, even my grandmother might recognize as being yeah. how you do food. That's interesting. So, okay, so there you go. So that's Avocado Anxiety and Other Stories About Where Your Food Comes From by Louise Gray. That's on our list. Tick. Excellent. Other things. That, so let's talk about Simon Sharp, Five Times Faster. Tell us about this. This is, this is the most wonkish book on my list. We like a and... bit of wonk around here. Yeah. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. It's essentially... It's essentially an attempt to work out what the hell has been going wrong with our efforts to fight climate change such that we've spent 30 years talking about it and emissions are still rising. Whether people have their own answers for why that is, environmental activists might say that it's because the fossil fuel industry has got its tentacles into into legislatures around the world so much and been pumping out misinformation about climate change for so long that your main culprits. Other people might say that it's just something about human nature that we're not cognitively equipped to care that much about such a kind of abstract and at least once upon a time far away problem as climate change. Although actually Simon Sharp has a different answer. He says that actually we have been trying really hard to do something about it. It's just we've been making the problem way more difficult for ourselves than it needs to be. The main example of this that he gives is how the COP process works. COP proceeds by consensus. That's why every COP ends with this kind of frantic 
effort to see what Worthing the Petro States might agree to. And Simon Sharp says basically that if you want to make progress on climate change, it's incredibly stupid to limit the pace of progress to the pace that the most recalcitrant parties are happy with, which is basically what that consensus requirement does. Right. So he says that while we should persist with that kind of struggle over the wording of what the final agreement of COP says, that should not be the main thing. The main thing should be the countries and the companies and the investors who actually want to do something about this problem, mm. getting together and helping each other to do it and forming coalitions of the willing was actually one of the civil servants who did a lot of the work towards COP26. Mm. And he actually put that interaction, creating the breakthrough agenda that led to initiatives of coalitions of the willing to speed up the deployment of EVs, mm. stop deforestation, limit methane, and so on. And so... G-fans. And he's, exactly. So he's not just a, a theoretician. Mm. He's actually been in the thick of climate diplomacy. And I think the more people listen to him, the better, really. Mm. Because, I mean, I've read a lot of policy wonks studies of what's been going wrong with our efforts to stop climate change. Honestly, after you've read a few of these things, Mm. like, you don't come across many new ideas very often. But Five Times Faster was one of those books that just had a new and interesting idea in every chapter, uh, definitely one for the policy wonks in your listenership. Well, yeah, I think I said it in the green room before we started. Yeah, it's sitting, it's calling to me. It's on the shelf behind me. What I have read of it so far has been fantastic. So mm. the next one on your list is The Last Drop, Solving the World's Water yeah. Crisis by Tim Smedley. Tell us about yeah. that. So The Last Drop is about the water crisis, which is advancing the world over, basically, as we drain our aquifers, which is being exacerbated by climate change. It starts with this rather surreal vignette of the lake behind the Hudson Dam, uh, Lake Mead, where the water keeps going down. And so they keep on building the road lower so that they could get the boats to it. But then by the time that they've extended the road, the lake has gone down even further. They still can't get the boats to it. And it's just this kind of darkly funny sort of expression of is going wrong with our use of water where we're digging deeper and deeper into aquifers and using ever cleverer machinery to extract this non-renewable resource to keep on irrigating parts of the world which wouldn't otherwise be very suitable for farming. At some point, we're going to run out. So his thesis is basically that while the water crisis is exacerbated by climate change, we shouldn't fatalistically think that because of climate change, we are doomed to, to run out of water or doomed to be able to irrigate large swathes of of the world's farmland anymore. I mean, essentially, he says that the main issue is not the worsening climate, it's human mismanagement. Uh, And yeah, his book is an exploration of ways to manage water better, essentially. And is there anything that that didn't make it into the the list that made it into the newspaper that uh, you wanted to drop in? So there's one which didn't make it because it will be published a week too late to make it into the 2023 list in January. Hmm. And that's not the end of the world. 
which is by Hannah Ritchie. Uh, and about halfway through it, essentially it says what it says on the tin. It's, right. I should say, Han- Hannah Ritchie is, a, is an analyst at Our World in Data, is really good at telling these stories through statistics, which mm. are really surprising. The overarching surprise is that actually on many environmental problems, we're making a lot more progress than you might think. Mm. A lot more progress than Hannah Ritchie herself once thought as yeah. an undergraduate. I mean, she writes very movingly about how when she was studying the environment in undergrad, she was really depressed about it. She thought we were he- heading to hell in a handcart. Basically, she's crunched the numbers on everything from decline in air pollution to the uptake of renewable energy to deforestation. And she's found that air is cleaning up. Deforestation is at least slowing, though not yet in reverse. On climate change, we have probably averted the kind of apocalypse on which people like Extinction Rebellion would base their rhetoric. We've averted the kind of four or five degrees of warming that we seem to be heading for only 10 years ago. Right. We now have a chance to limit it to two degrees or even less. I guess, like we were saying at the start of the conversation, we should not be triumphalist about that by any means, at least because two degrees would still be a disaster for many people in many parts of the world. But I think that it should at least be a kind of source of hope and a fuel for our continuing efforts that we have made this progress and won't be retiring into the world of Mad Max. Essentially. <laughs> well, that, that is, a, I think, a good hopeful place, the season that it's in it, to, to probably leave it. So yeah, I'm actually, I'm very jealous. I pre-ordered Dr. Ritchie's book, but it's, of course, mm. you know, not yet. So I'm, I'll be desperately trying off-air, Ben, to bribe you to give me your review copy when you're done with it. <laughs> but uh, of course, you wouldn't ever do that. But in any case, I will <laughs> thank you again so much, Ben Cook, Earth editor of the Times, I think I'm right in saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is that your formal title? But anyway, writes about climate yeah. tech and the environment for the Times. Buy your, get your subscription. I certainly have, and Ben's one of the people I read whenever he is in. So, so happy you could be here with us, Ben. We're going to put all those recommendations in the show notes in terms of links to where people can do their last minute climate tech gift giving, gift buying for the person in their life, whether they're a policy wonk or a thriller enthusiast. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Wicked Problems. And if you like this conversation, please share it and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps people find the show. You can subscribe to our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk, where you can also find more episodes with Richard Elvin and Claire Brady and all our show notes. And consider becoming a paid subscriber to help support our work. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. For now, thanks for listening. 